Welcome to the Enviowa Podcast, a podcast produced by the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research at the University of Iowa. Each month we discuss environmental research, news, and initiatives that matter to Iowans. I'm your host this month, Jenna Ladd, and today we're speaking with Ingrid Gronstall Anderson from the University of Iowa Power Plant. Uh, my name is Ingrid Gronstall Anderson. I'm an environmental compliance specialist uh, with facilities management here at the university. Um, so my job role is essentially um, to make sure uh, the university is in compliance with uh, a pretty broad array of uh, environmental regulations that apply to the university. Um, it's kind of an interesting situation because a lot of environmental regulations are written with industry in mind or, or specific industries in the university because we have labs and we have a power plant and we have uh, educational operations. Uh, we fit into a lot of different uh, categories and also sort of don't fit into those categories. So it's a lot of looking at applicability and, and seeing where how, how things can fit in with our operations here. Okay. And then I've just kind of started beginning podcast with this question, which is tell me about your earliest memory or connection to the natural environment. Sure. So my my parents met up in Okaboji, up in Spirit Lake in Northwest Iowa. Uh, my mom is from uh, Esterville, which is close to there. And my dad's family always had um, summer places up there. And so uh, I spent every summer going up to Okaboji as a kid and, and swimming in the lake and, you know, uh, fishing and uh, hiking around up there. So that's, I think, my earliest connection to uh, the outside world. Right here in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell me more about the University of Iowa's current energy portfolio and maybe how that's changed over time and how it's expected to change moving forward. So the university operates a power plant on on campus. Um, it's pretty it's pretty visible if you ever go to football games. Uh, it's right on Burlington Street, right on the Iowa River, and it's been there since the 20s, and it was originally designed to burn coal. It's a coal plant. It's been a coal plant um, for most of its history. Um, there are two solid fuel boilers in that plant and two natural gas boilers currently. And in the solid fuel boilers, uh, we've been burning, uh, in one of those boilers, we've been burning, burning oat hulls since 2003. Um, so that was our first sort of foray into biomass, biomass sources of fuel. And now we also uh, routinely burn wood chips uh, mixed with our coal. Um, we also have 800 acres of miscanthus grass that we're using as a dedicated energy crop, and we're currently doing testing on a uh, composite energy pellet. Um, so that makes up most of the energy portfolio that we produce on campus. Uh, we also, um, the campus uh, energy system uh, is a combined heat and power system. So the power plant is actually designed to produce steam, and then that steam goes through electric um, I'm sorry, through steam turbine generators, and that produces electricity as a byproduct. So um, when uh, a lot of times when I talk to people about energy on campus, everyone focuses on, on electricity and uh, calling it a power plant may in some ways be a misnomer, but it's, our, our goal is really to d- distribute steam across campus, and then we produce uh, electricity as a byproduct. We don't produce uh, enough electricity to meet all of the campus electricity demands, so we get about uh, 25% of our total uh, energy from Mid-American. So we have purchased electricity, our various solid fuels that we burn, and then natural gas. Okay, and what's like about, I mean, it's probably hard to give this number, but a percentage breakdown of each source. <clears throat> so uh, currently, I would say, so last year, I'll just go off of last year's numbers. So I think we were at about uh, 18% renewable. Um, so that's those biomass sources. Of that, um, Oat Hulls is the largest currently. 
um, the other sources. Miscanthus, for instance, uh, we have those 800 acres. It takes about three years for that crop to reach maturity. So we have uh, a lot more of those acres will be coming online uh, this year, but we haven't, uh, that hasn't been a large part of our fuel portfolio yet. Uh, wood chips, we mix in uh, about uh, 5% wood chip blend with our coal. So it doesn't, it, it's a continuous stream of biomass, but it doesn't uh, make up a high percentage of our energy portfolio. Uh, then we have looking at our overall energy portfolio, about 25% is that purchased electric. I would say about 25% is natural gas and then the rest is coal. I think last year our natural gas was higher uh, because our solid fuel boilers were down for a, a project to improve our emissions control equipment. So there was a regulation that came out um, called Boiler Mact, and we had to comply with that. So we had to upgrade. Uh, we did a multi-million dollar project to upgrade our emissions control equipment on those boilers. So they weren't in service for quite a bit of last year. So we had a higher natural gas percentage. So it fluctuates depending on uh, demand of campus, depending on you know what boilers are in service. And then um, we also... The advantage of having this energy portfolio is that we can make decisions based on, um, you know, are, are, are there more favorable, you know, is natural gas more favorably priced right now? Or uh, is there a new source of wood that's coming out? Or, you know, we can we can make decisions based on favorability of, of the energy at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And from what I understand, President Harold announced last year, I think it was, that the university plans to be coal-free by 2025. Right. Um, and so how how does the power plant play into that? What's kind of the plan moving forward? Sure. So the, the I mean, that's the, uh, that you know, the power plant was involved in, in uh, that decision-making. So we have two, uh, we have two goals that we're currently pursuing. The first, um, back in 2010, uh, then, then University of Iowa President Sally Mason and then EPA Region 7 Administrator Carl Brooks got together and agreed on seven sustainable sustainability targets for the university to hit by uh, 2020. And the second, the second of which was to obtain 40% of our energy from renewable sources by 2020. So that's really got the, what got this biomass effort started. We, you know, the university looked at, so the facilities group looked at, okay, we have this goal to uh, increase renewable energy on campus. How are we actually going to do that? And uh, they looked at a lot of options, and the idea was uh, we have this power plant, we have a, a energy distribution system across campus. It's combined heat and power district energy system, so it's pretty efficient. So the idea was instead of uh, making big capital investments to change our infrastructure, we would just switch to a renewable fuel source and use our existing infrastructure and our existing assets and approach renewable energy that way. So that's our renewable energy goal. And then, uh, as you said, in February, uh, President Harold announced the goal to be coal-free by 2025. And that we see that as sort of the next uh, extension of of uh, the 40% goal. And we've gotten asked a lot, you know, well, once you hit 40%, are you just going to stay there? And uh, we've always maintained that we're going to, um, you know, go as far as biomass, as far with biomass as we can. Mm -hmm. And so it it was sort of a natural progression uh, out of that decision. But the power plant obviously still burn coal currently. So uh, the power plant has to find alternative fuels, alternative means of operation, alternative, you know, logistics and transportation for that fuel. So there's a lot there, there's a lot of moving parts behind it, but we have enough momentum and enough experience now with biomass that we think it's a pretty viable option to go in that direction. It's a way to get off coal. Um, a lot of other universities have been moving off of coal and they've been um, just switching to natural gas primarily, uh, which is, you know, cleaner and more efficient in a lot of ways. But we, we, A, wanted to stick with 
uh, renewable energy options and natural gas is still a fossil fuel. Mm -hmm. Um, and we also wanted to have this portfolio of fuels, you know, just, uh, uh, for energy security, for reliability, um, and to give us, you know, some more options of, of fuels back in 2013, when we had that very cold winter with all the polar vortexes, um, we had a, there were a few natural gas shortages, um, that, that really, a couple of individual days really spiked natural gas prices and that sort of concerned us and you can hedge and do some other things with natural gas but we wanted to make sure we had other other options available especially as uh, other industries continue to move toward natural gas you know that supply and infrastructure on the natural gas side continues to be challenging certainly yeah (laughs) um and so i hear what you're saying with the like not wanting to build new infrastructure so biomass seemed like the way to go Mm -hmm. and i know some people have concerns about drawbacks with biomass sure um can you discuss what some of those concerns are and then maybe your answer to them sure so i think um well i you know i think there are are um you know, when you're in renewable energy, I think there's there's a lot of technologies that are good, and there's always drawbacks to whatever you're doing. And uh, the the uh, concern I hear most is that we're still still combustion, right? So we're still adding carbon to the atmosphere by burning things. Whatever you're burning has carbon in it. It's going to go into the atmosphere. And uh, we've done some work with uh, the University of Iowa Chemistry Department. Um, to categorize our our emissions from our various biomass fuel sources, um, Dr. Dr. Betsy Stone has been involved in that, and at least oat holes and to a degree, I think miscanthus have lower greenhouse gas emissions. Um, the other thing, uh, you know, I would hesitate to call it carbon neutral, but the other thing about using a fuel like miscanthus is grows during during the year. It takes carbon in, you burn it releases carbon so you're much closer to a carbon neutral system there than you know natural gas or coal where the, that carbon has been uh, in the ground for millions of years mm-hmm. so um, I think there are benefits obviously it's not not ideal but it is a, a cleaner you know more renewable source that way I think wind and solar you, you know one thing we struggle with with those options is a um, we need to have baseload energy available. We have uh, the hospital that we service, and we have research labs. And our reliability to those customers is critical. I mean, our reliability across campus is critical, but um, those facilities, you know, they have uh, particular temperature requirements. They, you know, you can't have an energy blip, you know, during a surgery or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, so we need that that baseload reliable energy, uh, and then just our the amount of space on campus that we would have to put in something like. Uh, wind or wind or solar. Um, we just haven't. Uh, th- I think those options are still on the table. We just haven't found a project that'll that'll work. And the mm-hmm. percentage we would get off of those, I think, is smaller than what we can what we can get for biomass. So when we're looking at these goals, we can get a larger chunk of that more quickly using the biomass approach. Okay. So this in talking about Dr. Betsy Stone, um, I'm curious too about the ways in which um, researchers work on campus inform what you do at the power plant. Sure. Yeah. So we have, um, you, you know, that's one of the one of the exciting things about this project, and I think one of the exciting things about working at an educational institution is that you have a lot of expertise right here on campus. So uh, Dr. Stone's work has been really important for us to, you know, as we we uh, transition to uh, new types of fuels. You know, these are things that we don't know a lot about, and we 
assume that they're going to, that the emissions profile is going to be favorable, but uh, we need to actually know that. And so that's an area where Dr. Stone has been really helpful to characterize not only, uh, you know, we do compliance testing for, uh, we have our various permits that we need to comply with and state and federal regulations. Um, so we're required to do compliance testing for those. Uh, but then Dr. Stone can look at um, other things like she's looked at PAHs, which are uh, carcinogens. Um, she's looked at uh, greenhouse gas emissions and things. So beyond actually what our regulatory requirements are to, to uh, make sure, you know, if there are concerns with public health uh, or concerns with how this is affecting ambient air quality, um, we, we, can, we can address those or at least, you know, understand uh, what we're putting in the atmosphere. So I think that kind of research is is uh, really important and really beneficial. Um, and to have that expertise uh, here is really great because um, uh, you know we have really good stack testers that we work with, but their job is to do regulatory compliance stack testing. So, so this is a little bit uh, more out of the box. So that's mm -hmm. um, a nice opportunity for researchers to get, get involved. And we've had student groups in the past. We've had MBA teams look at uh, financial analyses for us for biomass, different biomass options, or look at um, the feasibility of putting in, you know, a, a densification plant or a pelletizing plant. And we work very closely with Dr. Emily Heaton at Iowa State mm -hmm. on the Miscanthus project. Uh, they do a lot of our agronomic support and our agronomic research and development. Um, so that has been, uh, A, a nice collaboration, and B, uh, again, another uh, opportunity for uh, research uh, to get involved in this. We're uh, actually uh, applying this week for a joint USDA DOE grant uh, to look at Miscanthus supply chain optimization and uh, Dr. Stone's on that and Dr. Heaton and a few other researchers from Iowa State. So I think this project has a, a, a lot of opportunities for, for people to get involved in, in different areas. And luckily we have a lot of that expertise, you know, right here in the mm -hmm. state. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's just across multiple disciplines too, which is really nice. Yeah. Uh, I think, yeah, I mean, when you look at, you know, um, inter uh, interdisciplinary studies or even you look at sustainability, I mean, one of the nice things about this project is the, the ancillary you benef uh, benefits you get from a lot of this. So looking at miscanthus, for instance, planting, uh, it, it's a perennial crop, it's a perennial grass. So when you plant perennials on the landscape, you get benefits uh, with erosion control, you get benefits um, in water quality. Um, you have farmers locally who get an opportunity to have another revenue stream besides just uh, corn soy rotation. When you look at, you know, social, economic, uh, environmental, um, there's a lot of different benefits that can come from, from this type of effort. Yeah, that triple bottom line of sustainability. Yeah, absolutely. Is biomass a more affordable option? Or is it just a more dependable option? Like you talked about when there's these spike in prices with natural gas? Yeah. So I think that's, I mean, that's kind of a hard question to unpack. So that's something that we've, we've looked at quite a bit, and it depends uh, what, your, what your economic criteria are, right? Mm -hmm. So do you have, do you want an ROI? Uh, so if, if you were to do a, a solar installation and you would buy this equipment and install it, and then you would want an ROI after a certain period of time, you know, that's, that's one way we've looked at evaluating um, solar projects. Biomass is a little more there's opportunities and drawbacks there because it's a, it's a newer field. And so you have some opportunities to get efficiencies, but you don't have the, sometimes the economies of scale or the, you know, um, the facilities or infrastructure uh, isn't there yet. And so things can be a little bit more expensive. So I would say, you know, with most, with most renewable energies, 
Uh, I think the technology is there, and I think the economic incentives and the economies for scale are not of scale are not yet is my my read of the situation. And I'm not an expert in the economics of of renewables, but uh, I think that th that's a challenge is that it, you don't have those economies of scale or that infrastructure in place that really make it appealing and affordable to go there. Uh, I think there are some, and and one advantage you do have with uh, wind and solar in a lot of cases is you have, you know, tax credits or other uh, financial incentives to go that direction. Uh, the university can't take advantage of a lot of those because we're, uh, we don't, we don't have, we don't pay taxes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so uh, private businesses or private individuals can, can take advantage of those types of incentives. But for the university, it's a little bit more difficult. Certainly. And I feel like coming back to that triple bottom line of like, it's, it, it depends on what you monetize, right? Mm -hmm. um, because there's still those social benefits mm -hmm. and obviously environmental benefits as well. Yeah. And part of, you know, again, going back to this grant we're applying for, uh, if we get the opportunity to pursue that project, part of it is doing, um, you know, a real uh, in-depth like life cycle analysis of miscanthus production and, you know, where are your highest cost points and, and, you know, really diving into all those different pieces of it because uh, there's a lot of moving parts. And so, you know, getting a real handle on where are the, where, where are their efficiencies to be gained or where is this really not economically feasible at this point? And then how can we target those areas to, to make it easier? Um, I think are, are, are important things for the industry to sort out. And I think that's where the industry is going is how can we, you know, how can we make this a little bit easier? Uh, Dr. Heaton likes to say, you know, there's no part of pursuing a project like this that in and of, you know, there's no one thing that's a deal breaker, but every piece of it is difficult. And so if you, you know, it's just sort of a, a war of attrition at that point, like, can you hang in and try to figure out all of these problems that pop up? Or do you eventually just, you know, say it's too, it's too complicated and too difficult to keep going? Mm -hmm. And for all of you, I mean, it seems that it's worth it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, again, um, there's so many benefits and opportunities out of it. You know, one, one thing we, we, we like to talk about a lot is, uh, you know, we don't have, uh, Iowa doesn't have natural gas or coal mm -hmm. uh, resources, but we do grow things well here. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the opportunity for developing a, an Iowa, uh, an Iowa-based or homegrown energy uh, economy is a really exciting one. And I think that, you know, Iowa has uh, been a leader in renewable energy as far as wind resources. And I think um, there's, there's a lot of opportunities here to pursue biomass as well. And I think there are some ancillary benefits as far as, um, the land and, and improvements and, you know, water quality and, and things like that. The, um, uh, nutrient reduction strategy actually lists dedicated energy crops as one of the strategies that farmers can employ to improve water quality. And it's, it's to my knowledge, the only one of those options that actually produces a revenue stream for that grower. So mm -hmm. most of the other options um, are going to be a, a hit to that farmer's bottom line. But this one uh, might actually be at least break even or, you know, uh, profitable. OK, um, so those are all of the questions I have. Are there any other um, pieces of information you'd like to share about your work or the power plant with our listeners? Well, I think, you know, I think one thing that's really unique uh, to this project, and uh, one of the things that's exciting about working on this is, you know, I think historically or stereotypically, you know, industry professionals aren't seen as uh, particularly progressive or forward-thinking. And I think one advantage we have here is that our um, power plant operations team is is 100% on board with this project, and they, you know, a lot of the effort to to figure these things out falls on their shoulders. 
And, um, you know, it's their day-to-day job that gets interrupted as we're trying new fuels or they have to um, come up with new strategies for, you know, uh, how to how to get this new material through the conveying system and get it in the boiler and have the proper, you know, the proper heating and, and everything uh, in place for their boiler. So I, I guess basically what I'm trying to say is, you know, it, it's, a, it's been a lot of inf- innovation and a lot of work on on their part. And this this project is is uh, driven a lot out of our uh, facilities group. So it's not something necessarily where uh, the administration has come out with a, an edict and then it has been you know pushed onto um, this facilities group. Uh, the administration has been really supportive, but this idea has really come out of our our facilities group. So I think that's that's something unique here is it's driven from the people who are uh, actually doing the work and they're doing a they're doing a great job and they get. Uh, curveballs thrown at them all the time, uh, testing this material and, and, and solving problems, and they've done a, a great job. So I think that that's uh, one of the most exciting parts of this. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much for talking with me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for checking out episode eight of Inviowa. We had music today from David Sestay. Please also check out our blog at iowaenvironmentalfocus.org where we cover environmental research and news every day of the week. Or reach out to us on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Thanks for listening. From the UI Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, I'm Jenna Ladd.